This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say, eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. You're saying the definition of high art has broadened significantly. I don't totally see that much of a hierarchy difference between, you know, making art, making a painting, making a ceramic versus, you know, making a unique, you know, trench coat. I was very obsessed with clothes when I was 13 and the kind of interrogation that you would get because you were wearing something in particular and I loved that. So clothing is a sort of badge of belonging but also is a symbol of rebellion. Yeah. And also a form of therapy. Yeah, without a doubt. And I knew it was powerful, I just didn't know why. Trump's America was strong in that collection. If we're talking about autobiography, it's, it's kind of like uh, painfully knowing that demographic of middle American and of Trump supporter. The Couture Show, I have to say, was a bit of a nightmare because of COVID. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF podcast. This week, we share a conversation between our editor-at-large, Tim Blanks, and the artist and designer Sterling Ruby, who has recently been taking his multidisciplinary point of view from the art world and applying it to the wide world of the fashion business. Tim and Sterling talk about the blurred boundaries between his art and clothes and the distinctly American perspective that he shares through his work. Here's Sterling Ruby, Inside Fashion. 
Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome to BOF Live. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Sterling Ruby, an artist whose work I've loved for a long time. I'm known to the fashion world because he worked closely with Raph Simmons on a collection of clothing and then was very instrumental in shaping the identity that Ralph, that Raph created for Calvin Klein. Um, and a month ago, Sterling did something quite unprecedented in the realms of art and fashion. He launched a couture collection at the same time as the shows were happening in Paris at the invitation of the Chambre Syndicale, who are a very fussy uh, administrative body for French fashion and don't invite outsiders in very easily. So I'm very curious as to how the Chambre Syndicale invited you to show on the couture schedule. Sterling, welcome to BOF Live. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Um, good evening. Good morning. Um, I don't really know. Uh, we, we received the invitation through uh, a, a, a mutual acquaintance. Um, you know, we, we, we did, I did this very small project in the season before, which was just the ready to wear women's ready to wear season. It was, um, it was a project called flag veil and it was just one thing. It was a denim flag that had been, you know, kind of sewn in the studio as this addition. And we partnered uh, with the ACLU, which we've done in the past. And I did this project, which was a very uh, minimal, uh, just a couple of minutes where a model had this kind of draped over him and stood up. I wrote uh, a narration for that and had these two um, voiceover uh, actors read it and, and put it together. Um, and they had, reached out to us about doing a project for that particular season. And, you know, we, we just, because of COVID, we weren't, we weren't really ready. And so I decided to do this, this kind of one-off project with this, um, with this film. And, you know, after we did it, uh, we felt very good about it. Uh, the, the project was very successful for the ACLU uh, and for us. And, um, you know, shortly after that, we received a letter saying how much they liked that particular project and would we like to do uh, Couture. Which wasn't actually in your head at that time then, was it? To do a, to do a collection of Couture with all, everything that comes with that idea, the tradition, the kind of the conventions, the, the sort of elitism. Um, how, what was appealing about this notion to you? You're right. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that when we first received the invitation, I wasn't sure how we fit within that. Um, you know, there's an elevation to it. There is um, these kind of set standards, rules. Um, you know, when you think of couture, you, you think of, you know, this kind of bourgeois embellishment. Um, and you know, the more and more we thought about it, we, you know, we, we kind of felt like this was a very appropriate thing. You know, when I, when I started developing the brand, we, we thought of these different tiers within the brand, uh, whether it be something that was hand-treated, handmade in the studio, whether it was a piece that was just 
one piece, uh, a unique piece, uh, more like an artwork. And so we decided to, to kind of think about couture as our version of something made by hand. Maybe it was unique, maybe it was something that's directly made in the studio. And, you know, that's how it kind of came about. We, we justified it by thinking that this is our version of couture. Uh, in a sense, I guess it was a pretty logical extension of what you do anyway, because you work in a number of different media, but all of them involve intense handwork and craftsmanship. And, um, you know, couture, that's it. And it's about the hand. Yeah, I mean, it's also, I mean, I guess, you know, the elevation of couture is what the industry perceives as the highest form of, of garment making and fashion. And, you know, we thought that, um, you know, there's, there's an element to that with what I do as well. I mean, I don't totally see that much of a, of a hierarchy difference between, you know, making art, making a painting, making a ceramic versus, you know, making a unique, um, you know, trench coat. And so it wound up becoming this kind of element of, you know, thinking about the atelier as the studio, thinking about, um, you know, kind of also uh, thinking about touch and, and thinking about hand. Um, you know, we, we have this within art as well as you have it in fashion. You know, sometimes the most skilled hands wind up, you know, producing these things that almost seem like nobody has touched them. They're so perfect. And I think one of the things that we wanted to kind of explore was the tactility of that, particularly during this moment in time. Um, you know, kind of the, the craft element, the, the, the kind of um, personal touch of, of making something that you can see the, the visibility of, of, it, of its, uh, you know, construction. Now, um, we had a conversation about this a few weeks ago, and you were saying that you didn't think about creating a collection of clothing as being particularly, as the process wasn't particularly different from making an artwork for you. But the thing about it is that the expectations are slightly, you know, slightly different. The world obviously looks at it in a slightly different way. What was the reaction? I'm really curious about what the reaction of the art world was because it was presented entirely within the context of fashion. It wasn't, this is an art project in the fashion world. It was a fashion project. So, you know, the art world, I think the art world is more fascinated by the fashion world and the fashion world is fascinated by the art world. So I'm curious about what the art world thought. Um, I don't really know to tell you the truth. Um, you know, everybody has been supportive. Uh, you know, I work with a group of, of galleries who are very much in tune with the idea of, um, you know, this generation's, you know, kind of comfortability of, of everything being some form of, of art or another. Um, you know, I work with a gallery called Spritmagers, which is a German gallery. And right now they're doing a huge campaign with Bottega uh, Veneta with uh, Rosemary Trockel. Um, you know, I show with, with a large gallery called Gagosian that, um, uh, you know, continues to push uh, online content and publishing with choreographers and filmmakers and musicians. And so, I don't 
I, I actually, I, I feel pretty confident that I work with people who um, are fine with it. Now, whether or not they, they kind of understand where that might go, I don't know. I don't really know. But I don't, I don't necessarily know if I know either, you know. But you're not doing the, you, you didn't make this collection for art collectors. You made it for people to buy, to, to, to appreciate, to buy and to wear. We did, yeah. The way, the way, they, the way they buy and wear the, the rest of their We do, yeah. 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 yeah, we, we wound up doing that and I'm, I'm happy for that. Um, you, I, you know, I guess to a certain extent, we, we don't produce a lot to begin with. Um, you know, we have a very small team. There's only eight of us, including myself. Um, most of what we make is in-house. Um, you know, we have a, a space and another building dedicated just to the label in the studio. Um, and, you know, it gave us the opportunity to get a little bit more uh, of a connection with the people who have supported us over the past couple of years, which has been pretty diverse. You know, I, I've said this, I think you and I talked about this, but I was, you know, the past couple of years, I've been surprised, you know, we have, we have support and, you know, people who want to, you know, wear the clothes and buy the clothes that are 20 year old musicians. And then we also have, you know, a, a full spectrum that leads up to, you know, a 70 year old art collector. So, you know, the idea of making something that is limited and maybe even unique, um, for that demographic made a lot of sense. And then the way that we kind of packaged it and put it together as this trunk show made even more sense, particularly for right now. So we toured around as a trunk show. We didn't tour it. We actually, we took, um, we took about eight retailers and also within our own e-commerce site and just held appointments. And we, you know, did Zoom meetings. We, you know, we showed people all of the trims, all of the production online, um, you know, through these kind of Zoom meetings. And we took, uh, we took pre-orders and that was it. Uh, we won't produce any more after that. So you've sold it, you've sold it well? It's, it, you know, it's definitely sold well. I, I think that we weren't sure um, how this idea of, you know, uh, doing an online virtual trunk show would go. But I, I actually think that for a lot of the retailers that we, that we love working with, like, you know, in Paris, like the Broken Arm, or, you know, here in Los Angeles, like Mameg, um, you know, I, I think it was a bit of a breath of fresh air and maybe a bit of a relief that, you know, these were pre-orders, you know, that they weren't, you know, they weren't going to sit on racks and they, you know, um, you know, the idea of inventory right now seems daunting to me for everybody. Yeah. Did, did you get the sense that there were people who would buy them to hang on the wall and say, there's my new Sterling Ruby? Maybe, maybe. Yeah. And is maybe. that a pleasing prospect for you? I'm fine with it. I, you know, I think that, again, there's a kind of generational shift where, I know that a lot of menswear and a lot of young men um, are very infatuated with, you know, the idea of, of collecting and, and reselling, 
you know, it's also an industry kind of um, no man's land right now. The the notion of of um, holding on to something and and reselling and you know, kind of looking after these kind of holy grails of um, yeah. particular pieces from different collections, different designers. Yeah. But you know, it's 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 interesting that in a sense, couture is the most sustainable form of fashion there is because it isn't disposable. Yeah. You know, and you yeah. and there's the notion of heritage and heirloom and all sorts of stuff with fashion. So. Right. Right. You know, there might be women and men in a hundred years who are who are you know selling their rubies or wearing their rubies. Or... Maybe I don't know. I will. We'll see. I mean, we've been very fortunate. Most of the unique pieces, um, you know, are are kind of um, you know. I imagine that as far as the institutions, they will go into collections. They will go into archives and you know and be well taken care of. But I know there's some other unique pieces that. Are going to be worn and probably worn, you know, out and about till they're till they're ragged, you know, which is kind of also very beautiful. You know. Roll on the red carpet. When were you first? When were you bitten by the fashion bug? Uh, you know, I I think professionally, probably around two thousand seven. Um, you know, we started this project in the studio around two thousand seven because my my focus really shifted towards um, textiles uh, and textiles in terms of sculpture, textiles in terms of these like very large flags and these, these big, you know, kind of quilts. Um, you know, my, my thought was that my generation came after a generation of artists that were very much um, conceptual practitioners. And that the idea of running a studio and working in a studio and making things by hand were kind of um, um, a little passe. And those were a lot of the teachers that I had um, that, um, you know, kind of notoriety was, was around that. And I saw a lot of artists my age start to reassess all of those principles and to want to make work themselves they wanted their work to be sincere as opposed to ironic or kind of somehow theoretically conceptual and craft seemed to you know kind of like line itself within that and so while I was doing all of those you know or starting starting out making all of those pieces we would always set a certain amount of yardage to the side and I started to learn a little bit more about pattern making. And, you know, we, we started bringing in a few sewers part-time and we would make these kind of, um, we'd make these outfits that were, were kind of cutoffs of some of the sculptures and the, the flags and the artworks. And, you know, part of it kind of seemed ceremonial, like almost that you were cannibalizing some sort of, or form of your own work in order to, to wear, you know? And I really love that. And that became this kind of internal project. We were making clothes mostly for friends and people in the studio and myself, but it didn't totally have any place within the industry of fashion, really until, you know, I met people like Raph and Rick Owens and Peter Moulier and, and Mathieu Blaise. And so, you know, that's when the kind of industry shifted for me as a kind of, focus point but you know i mean i guess i was very obsessed with clothes when i was 13 uh and the kind of power of clothes and the kind of you know 
interrogation that you would get because you were wearing something in particular in an environment that you weren't supposed to. And I love that. Uh, I just didn't realize that that's probably what fashion, the heart, the heart of fashion, that's really what it, what it is, you know? You know, I've, I've, uh, I've gone on about this for years, but to me, fashion is a form of autobiography for the people who make it. And um, your art has always struck me as ex extremely autobiographical as well, that, that there's a sort of chaos and a turmoil. And, and um, it's interesting hearing about your childhood and hearing about the, the sort of the tensions and the schisms and things and in the community that you were raised in. I I'm, I'm, was just wondering, looking at these clothes, uh, how, much of, how much of your own past is integrated into, I mean, the notion of haute couture. It, it's, you can, the greatest couturier of all time was Cristobal Balenciaga and his, his entire career was this intensely personal quest coming yeah. deep inside him. Is there a similar kind of resonance for you? And in, in, um, I, I tend to think of it very much as autobiography. Um, you know, it can be autobiography right now. It can be autobiography forty years ago. Um, it I I think of it always as some form of autobiography. Um, you know, where I grew up was um, was very rural. You know. And, um, you know, the codes to that were kind of broad, but it had very much, you know, um, rules and regulations associated with how you dressed and how you kind of fit within that community, whether it was, you know, from the lineage of the Amish or Mennonite uh, communities to, you know, these hardcore gun right, you know, hunters. Um, who dressed in orange and camo all the time. Um, you know, but for me, there was also this, this scene within that, which was all of these young kids that were just not happy with, you know, um, with how those systems kind of, um, you know, set themselves up within these small communities and they just wanted to break from it. So it's, it's always funny for me to kind of revisit that and to think, you know, there's this element of dress making, like real dress making. There is this element of mass production utilitarian camouflage or, or, you know, hunting gear. And then there's this very scrappy DIY skater punk association with that, which I still, you know, thinking back on it, it's an amazing thing that all of these things were around me at the same time and they functioned in much different ways from one another, but it set up a lot of uh, um, instinctive and precursors to how, you know, I, I think of those things today, you know? So clothing is a sort of badge of belonging, but also as a symbol of rebellion. Yeah. And also a form of therapy for you in this environment. When you say you're 13 and you, have a sense of the power of clothing presumably you knew what to wear to piss people off in that environment yeah without a doubt yeah I mean that was always a kind of uh I don't know that was powerful and I knew it was powerful I just didn't know why you know until much later and I was like oh the sexuality of that was powerful I didn't know it but it was you know 
um, the, you know, just the element of gender was powerful within that, you know? And did you, were you exploring those ideas in your art then, do you think? You were kind of, I'm very, I'm very drawn to the notion of reconciliation, you know, that art yeah. is the way you, you kind of reconcile the various oppositions in your life. Yeah and fashion is as well. So. I just, at that at that point in time, I didn't know about art. I just, I didn't. Um, you know, my my family who was very, um, you know, my parents anyway, maybe not the rest of my family, but my, my parents were very liberal. They were very, um, they were very worried, but they were also very accommodating with, with you know, the, the interests that I was having. But there was no art, you know? I mean, there was art, but art, from a very historical standard, like almost that that art wasn't a possibility at that particular point in time. It was, you know, during the Renaissance and you know during Mannerism, but you know that that you know that there was no modern or contemporary art to to our knowledge at that time, which was always kind of um, you know always blew my mind. We didn't we didn't go to museums. We didn't have the knowledge of that. My family, my mother's family lived in the Netherlands, so we would go visit them sometimes. But whenever we'd go to a museum in like Belgium or the Netherlands, it was always a kind of, you know, a museum to see Rubens or, you know, a, you know, I mean, we weren't, you know. Rembrandt. Yeah, or Rembrandt or, you know, Da Vinci, you know, or, you know, I remember, you know, there's a big, you know, exhibition of Van Eyck's, you know, and they were like this big and, you know, to a teenager, like, what am I going to think, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, that came later, you know, and, and, and all of those things had a similar feel. So yes, therapy and autobiography, I know, like those two terms, sometimes, depending on who you're talking to, they seem very flat, you know, that these are things that you don't like hold on to. But for me, those things were very, very powerful. And every single time I lined up an interest with one of those things, it became obvious that that was very, very meaningful to me, whether it be experiencing making my own shirt, wearing it to high school, having a dispute, whether it was, you know, the early point of being in a band and going on tour and playing a show in a city that you didn't know, you know, that thing whether it was the first time that I, you know, that I decided I was an artist and I was going to go to art school. And, you know, even the most foundational things where you're just drawing a bowl of fruit or a nude figure for eight hours a day, you know that these things are kind of aligned within your own psyche and within your own personality and within your own, you know, needs and desires. So it is therapy. Did you, did you feel any desire for beauty? I mean, were you a scrappy kid or did you, did you have this sort of, this sense of otherness? I was a scrappy kid and I was an angry kid. <laughs> and at that time, like throughout my teenage years, it was, it was very much associated with um, the punk movement. And the punk movement that was almost mid eighties to early nineties, which was very much, um, uh activist and political based and beauty at what point did uh, you know beauty probably didn't 
really calm until I started to feel like I understood art. Really, the, the, the definition of art and how broad art could be. That's when beauty started to seem to be uh, inherently necessary to really, really understand what all of those things could be. And also to find beauty in the strangest places, which, you know, I, I, I think about the breadth of your work. And if you immerse yourself in your work, then this strange as eerie sort of beauty emerges from everything, whether it's a ceramic or a canvas or and there and the clothing as well. And it feels to me extremely American. You know, that, that, that there's an extreme, like, especially, th and this collection, this collection you did kind of consummates that in a way that you get this, this you have this lens on America, this outsider lens actually, which when I think about your work with Raf, with Calvin um, and with Raf on your own, the two, the collection, the two of you did, that there's the autobiography we talked about, very, very strong sense of that, but also this sort of eerie sense of place or displacement maybe more than anything, displacement. Yeah, but, or you know, some fascination, you know. Yeah, like, or some sort of form of alienation, you know, maybe that's that's part of it. I mean, you know, um, yeah, without a doubt. I, I feel the same way. Um, I think the beauty can come through a lot of different things. It could come through the decomposition of something mm -hmm. or the, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the deconstruction or the type of degradation, but it can also be, you know, historically lineated to, you know, some form of beauty that, you know, again, you know, what I was saying that, you know, I, I think that what was happening when I was, you know, kind of, really starting to first exhibit and, and to, to gain footing as an artist, uh, it was shifting, like all of those things were shifting and it's taken a little bit of time for it to totally, um, you know, become evident that like, you know, artists are looking for some form of sincerity. They want meaning and they want something that uh, could potentially have, you know, a kind of essence of the hand, but also that institutions and curators all throughout the states are now starting to grapple with the definition of what high art is and that high art can now encompass everything from film to television to fashion to craft and that we're seeing all of those things uh placed alongside and with the same level of hierarchy as you know abstract modernism or minimalism or, you know, and I, I believe that that's really beautiful. Like I, I, I kind of keep, I kind of keep going back to that idea where very early on when I was trying to figure out like why 20, I mean, now it's been 24, 25 years since I first started doing ceramics. Like, you know, why was I doing ceramics? I didn't totally understand that at the beginning. There was something very therapeutic to it. There was something very, you know, rotten to it. There was something very um, uh, therapy-based, like analytically and psychologically. But I didn't totally, I kept thinking that that was like another way to use a material as a conceptual practice, you know? And all of these years later, I realized that no, ceramics actually 
hold all of those things very well. It's very beautiful and has a lineage that is not only archaeological and historical, but also, uh, you know, it's linked to the utilitarian, to, to what people hold, to what people, you know, you know, drink with, the, the, what they eat off of. You know, there's so much of a kind of universal standard with certain materials and certain, you know, cultural kind of lineages of, of creative endeavors that are only now starting to be seen as, you know, on the same level. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Do you think fabric holds that same weight as as ceramic, as clay? I think so, yeah. I really, really think so. I don't know if that's totally there yet. I mean, you know, when you see the the new Annie and Joseph Alvarez book that just came out, you know, you leave through that thing and you're like, whoa, I'd love to, you know, love to, you know, just like hold those, (laughs) you know, 
Um, yeah, for me, it, it does. You know, when we have a really good fabric or we're, when we're developing something with, you know, a factory in Italy or, you know, trying to figure out a rinse here at the studio, it's exciting. I, I love, you know, the tactility of those things. Yeah. Now, talking about the way the whole, the, the, the definition, you're saying the definition of high art has broadened significantly. Over the last year, we saw uh, maybe social activism becoming part of that uh, repertoire of, of, um, of things that high art is now called on to um, embrace. And it, it makes me wonder whether you think, um, whether you think fashion reflects or projects that when you're, like you're talking about, art is, art is an easier thing to define in those terms, but fashion, you know, whether it reflects what's going on or whether it actually anticipates in a sort of zeitgeistian way, um, more and more over the past year, that has become a question because basically it boils down to relevance, how relevant is fashion? So what do you think about that? Um, well, I, I, you know, I mean, first and foremost, I think it's a, it's a positive thing, of course. Um, I'm surprised that it wasn't there prior. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess you can you can kind of like break that question down into a lot of different, um, you know, subcategories. You know, if we just look at the industry in general, was it that the industry had to catch up? Um, was it that um, there was a kind of authenticity that the industry was missing mm -hmm. that needed in order to stay relevant? Um, but then it's also, you know, part of me thinks that fashion might be a really great conduit for being able to tackle all of those things while still being able to make product mm. or or make something like make things um you know i really loved the couple of years that i had at calvin klein you know i it, it was like the one moment when i kind of thought oh wow if given the license if you know if if somebody were to give me the license of full creative director over something. Um, it's so massive, the scope at which you can, you know, tackle things, whether it be a runway show, whether it be a film or a commercial, an advertisement, a store display, architecture, the actual garment itself, publicity, press. I, you know, it's so massive that it's strange that it took this long to kind of get to where certain companies are in order to like use their kind of power and use their resources for for good you know yeah and look what had to happen to get them yeah I mean, well that's that's the thing yeah. yeah yeah and i guess that's what you know we talked about like i hope i hope it doesn't just go back to normal you know we i said the, the vision of um of calvin your vision of Calvin with you and Raf was kind of the outsider's point of view. I always walked away feeling like I'd seen an echo of Stephen King or something. It was it there was it was a very particular view of America, and um, it was pre-Trump's America as well. Your collection, Trump's America, was strong in that collection. I mean, I I thought between the between the notion of of Puritan persecution and kind of capitalist exploitation, 
that was in your collection. That, that huge idea. So it felt to me that you were taking on board, you know, really taking on board the real world that you were working in. Right. No, I mean, I, I, I feel with both within the label and within the art, I've, I've always tried to do that um, in some way, shape or form. If we're talking about autobiography, it's, it's kind of like knowing that demographic um, deeply and inherently and, and you know, uh, painfully knowing um, that demographic or that, that geography of, of um, middle America and, and of Trump supporter. It's, um, yeah, it, I remember being on the flight of, uh, you know, election night when Trump won. And like, you know, we were, we were going to New York for, we were, I was flying to New York every, pretty much every week for Calvin Klein. And I remember being on the flight when they announced it was a, it was a red eye flight, you know, and everybody stayed up to kind of like, um, see how the election results would go. And it was just like, oh, like this devastation on a flight and you can't, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, just with all these like people and the kind of, you know, tumultuous kind of echo of it in the plane. And we landed and we would usually kind of like take a red eye, go immediately to the offices and have our first, you know, days worth of meetings. And I remember like going in and, and you know, kind of like saying to, to Peter and Mathieu and Rap that, and Clement uh, that it has, we have to step it up. It has to be a little scarier. Like our version of, of Calvin Klein had to be a little scarier because mm. of this. Um, and that, we, you know, we needed to, to, to figure out very simple ideological, you know, kind of icons that everybody would recognize as America and, and kind of like really push those. Um, and so, you know, the axes and the, and, the, and the chrome bats and, you know, the kind of violence of these objects, but yet also these kind of pom-poms that I developed for, you know, for the stores and for the, for the you know, for the shows, like, you know, it, it had to feel like, you know, Carrie, it had to feel like Stephen King's Carrie, you know? And also like the, the cheerleaders and uh, the smells like teen spirit video, you know, the kind of gothic cheerleaders. Yeah, 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 without a doubt, yeah. I mean, listen, that was, I think it could have been a brilliant long-term project, you know. Yeah, it, 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 it felt to me, um, because it was very dark and because it was very, it was quite fearless and that horror movie linkage. Yeah. Um, it, if you felt it could have, if, if you felt it could have been a long-term project and it didn't work out that way, did you feel that with this new project, the Couture project, you were kind of closing the circle or something? Because there is something I thought in the way you presented it, it was quite macabre. Right. Yeah, right. The film you made for it was quite, I couldn't, it was scary, I guess. It was very apocalyptic, maybe post-apocalyptic. It felt very much like something that was coming out of America in a very, very dark place. Right, without a doubt. I, I, I thought that that was a kind of continuation, but also kind of where, you know, I had the most fun and that I thought my, um, 
I thought that my contribution to that project would come with client, like that's where I felt like I was, I was doing the most when I was like figuring out what's the, what's the assets, like what, you know, like what colors go with what, you know, um, you know, how do we bring in again, like objects that everybody knows and they're so referential that like everybody gets it. Um, you know, the, the, the couture show, I have to say was a bit of a nightmare because of COVID, you know, I had a totally different project planned. Um, you know, Bureau Batak was helping us, you know, do this massive kind of outside uh, actual runway show. I mean, you know, sticking within COVID guidelines, but still it was a much bigger show. We were doing it live. It was going to be outside. Um, and as the weeks neared, um, uh, you know, the numbers just got, it was too scary, you know, and I didn't, I just didn't feel safe, you know, and we had the option to back out, but I also knew that, you know, since March of last year, we were planning on doing a couple of other collections and it's just every single time we attempt to do it, it would fail because of COVID and we'd have to scrap it and start over again. And I thought doing, completing the couture show irregardless was like not only for me, but I think for the for the team, like a kind of morale booster. Mm. Um, but I had all of those things, and I had I had two weeks to figure out what what it was going to be. I had shot all of that footage years ago, um, and that's something that I I tend to do every time that I see a location or I see something that I want to document. Um, you know, I go videotape it, or we we send a drone out or something. So we have all of this footage in the archive um you know the soundtrack is from this musician called michael gira who you know started out this also is, in the 80s as swans this yeah. hard hard extremely yeah. brutal yeah. music and then during the 90s started this band called the angels of light which was almost like the beginning of what we now call neo-folk it's a beautiful beautiful music but catastrophically you know gothic and you know those two things just seem to to kind of loom as as like a, a potential to group together this one particular angels of light michael gara song and then you know this footage that i shot years ago but it was you know but we had talked about this as well there was not only the collection but there was also the composition and the way to put together this this footage and this um, soundtrack, which felt very Hollywood and felt very yeah. noir and, you know, yeah. you know, the draping of everything and the kind of flow and the kind of ghostly, you know, uh, you know, aspects of how things kind of the models kind of, you know, went throughout this space. It just, everything was kind of floating as if it was all on Steadicam, you know? Yeah. But without, without knowing that you had this other thing planned, the film seemed like you know, you talked about you talked about California couture. It, the film seemed the most appropriate way to present that notion, because you have you have that sort of the fabulous gothicism of LA. You have the designers, you know, who came out of LA, who are so such a lore into themselves. There's this interesting. I mean, whether you're talking about Rick Owens and God knows he absolutely 
probably defines the notion of 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 old Hollywood and being in love with old Hollywood as he is. That's the sort of old Hollywood gothic quality. But then you have somebody like Rudy Gernerich, who's a total rebel, um, total a revolutionary in fashion, one of the only designers who's ever been on the cover of Time magazine. And then you have somebody like James Galanos, an American couturier who rivals Paris, but who at the same time isn't trying to do French couture. Yeah, yeah. All of the mavericks. So the idea of California couture is a, is, is a maverick idea to me. And, it, and it's there. There is the history of that. And you're right. Like it's, it's definitely, it's not a European uh, sensibility. It's not even a New York sensibility. No, not at all. I mean, this is in and of itself. It was crazy. Just last week, I, you know, somebody from the office came to get me and they were like, uh, you know, Michelle's here. And I was like, what do you mean? Michelle who? You're like, Michelle and May, she's at the door. Uh, she just stopped by. But it, it's funny because it's, it's, you know, whenever I talk to Michelle or Rick, I'm kind of like, when are you, when are you guys coming back? Mm. You know, I know you've set up your your whole lives in in you know in Paris and in Italy, but you kind of belong here. You reckon life on the Lido <laughs> is pretty good? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know, I can see you know I can see Rick having like a whole new following here. I mean, you know, of course everybody follows him, but you know, it's it's. Um, but it is true. Like they they really do. Um, represent a totally different um, way of thinking, um, which I find just so refreshing, you know. But but you you are now kind of part of that. So it, in in the fashion context, anyway. Um, I mean, do you is there a sense of of being part of something, being part of a reevaluation, being part of a new wave in a way in fashion? People are now looking outside the major fashion metropolises. They are looking to the margins. More and more we hear about people coming from the most unexpected places. And that, that is the future. That obviously is the future. The world opens up, the world becomes a more diverse and inclusive place. What could that possibly mean for you, do you think? Could you become, would you like to become, you, you said it, you said it a little bit before that when you see the possibilities of a huge fashion corporation would you like to become a fashion tycoon i don't really know i don't I, I don't really know i you know i i think that there's something within that that i i find very intriguing uh i wouldn't say uh no but it would it would have to be uh it would have to be the right circumstance with the right people um but you know i i really like the potential that could happen with with that and i you know i i would think that most large luxury goods houses who i might add are not totally different from the big galleries you know and the galleries are doing this too you know they're figuring out ways to you know incorporate their publishing they're figuring out ways to create more content and more you know subcategories within their galleries and bring in people that are writers in order in, to integrate into their artists uh, catalog resumes and do interviews and do more online uh, you know kind of um, social media type stuff um, you know I don't think it's that different but you know the potential to totally 
have my own autonomy over something like that, I'm super interested in that, yeah. Fashion has always been more of a commodity than art. And then what we've seen is art becoming totally commodified in a yeah. way which is quite grotesque, actually. How, what are your feelings about that? I was curious as to whether you're, when I, when I read about the, 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 the couture collection, whether that was maybe a, you know, maybe an expression of frustration on your part about, about the art world that maybe you weren't so partial to what you were seeing happen around you. Maybe you felt like you needed a break from whatever was going on in the art world. Yeah, I think to give myself a little bit of space was definitely one of the reasons you know, I mean, the brand started out as just, you know, I guess, you know, again, you know, not that everything that I do is, has to have some sort of conceptual element to it, but the brand really started out as just like, let's make buttons and trims and, and patches and let's just make some clothes for people. Um, but, you know, as I became more familiar with it and it became a little bit of a bigger thing and a bigger thing each year, um, it definitely gave me some element of distance from the art as an industry. And, you know, I'm not, you know, I, I, you know, there's a lot of art that's like just completely conservative, you know, it's, you know, it is what it is. Um, it's, but what did it, that is, it is like, you know, it is for sale. You know? Yeah. What did that distance teach you when you, you said it gave you a distance? Looking back, did you learn? Did you learn something that you didn't already know when you looked yeah. at the art world from afar? From the I did. Uh, I, well, I, 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 I learned and it, and it proved to me that I had the capability to jump around a little bit. I, you know, I have a very manic, you know, personality. So this is, you know, being an artist has always been the best for me because I don't, I don't have to pick or choose. I can do multiple things th throughout the day. Um, you know, I can be, you know, pretty hyper and manic and, and still be able to like manage, you know, my productivity and, um, and, you know, work through series and stop series and start series. And uh, I have, I have a fully autonomous, um, you know, labor of love that I get to do every day. But, you know, working within the label and within fashion has proven that I can work creatively in that same set of standards, but in a different, different way. It can go to a different audience. It can be distributed a different way. It can be at a different hierarchy of cost. Um, yeah. I'm just curious, really, whether um, one thing I'm curious about is when I think about our friend Kristen in Dallas, when she was wearing the, the dress with your print in Raf's first couture collection for Christian Dior, wondering whether when people see this from you, whether it actually leads them to the art. I don't know. I don't really know. I, I, um, I don't know. Would you like that to happen? I would, yeah. I would like it to be, you know, uh, you know, cross-pollinating, <laughs> if, you, if, if, if you will. Yeah, 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 I would. And is there also the sense, um, the challenge is how do you do it differently from everyone else? How do you 
how do you make this a new thing? Is that a challenge as well? I, I think right now it's not so much a challenge because I'm only familiar with the few things that I've done. Um, and for the most part, outside of the projects that I've been associated with, with other designers or other houses, um, I do it all myself. So, you know, it's, it's self-funded, uh, this project and this, this label. Um, it is, um, you know, we, we try and figure it out to be the way that um, best accommodates me, whether or not that's the amount of time that I have to put into it or the amount of money that I can put into it. Um, so I, I feel pretty, again, I feel pretty lucky and autonomous that I get to do this in my own way and under my own standards. Um, but I don't necessarily know how different that is from, say, Acne or, you know, Marine Sayre. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Marine Sayre is a very interesting case in point. I, I've just yeah. done a story on her and I, honestly, I feel, I yeah. felt like I was talking to the future. I really yeah. did. She's great. She's really great. Yeah. Um, oh, there was one, there was one last thing I wanted to ask you. <laughs> Damn it. And I got, I got to this point and, oh, I know. Um, is it, do you feel, do you feel this is a good time to be an artist with, what, with everything that is happening in, in the world with the insane uncertainty and we're all, all of us everywhere, every country, every generation is dealing with this entirely, the word, you know, the cliche is unprecedented, but it is. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's no one alive who's ever encountered what, we, what we're going through. Is this a good time? To be an artist, is it an inspiring time? Is it a demotivating time? Do you have more material to work with, or do you do you feel defeated, or what? I don't really know. I don't. I don't know how other artists or other you know creative people um, feel about. It. I'm sure that there's you know elements of sadness and you know um, defeatism, um, but. You know, I, I, I think looking back, all of the work that I've always admired has been from creative types who worked through um, tumultuous times in history mm. and the work reflected that. Uh, and I think that's, ideologically, that's how culture is kind of like brought to the forefront of, um, of particular histories within, you know, the world. Um, I think the interpretation of that um, from creative people is very, very important. I know it's not always easy, though. Um, I think for me, it, it, uh, you know, I, we were just talking before we started. You know, I haven't, I haven't gone anywhere since March of last year. You know, so um, it's been a year. Things have slowed down. Um, you know, I've had a lot more time to just spend in the studio. Um, I just, you know, the reflection of all of those things and the way that it, it mirrors what's happening right now are real. And I hope when we look back at it, whether it be the work that I made or the work that Arthur Jaffa made or the work that, you know, Dries has made, 
um, you know, that we'll see that. We'll see that in some way, in shape or form. And that'll be really intriguing and special and wonderful. It's a wonderful idea. I just wonder, given the universality of clothing, where there is the, whether there is ultimate consolation in cloth. Yeah. Uh, you've been inside for a year and you can get a piece of fabric and it's like you're banky. You yeah. Know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're banky. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you know. Did you have a banky when you were a kid? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, you know, I mean, I don't, I, other than, you know, the things that are on the rack here, I haven't touched anything else for a year, you know. So it's like, you don't need to. I don't, you know, yeah. <laughs> Sterling, it's wonderful to see you. Thank you very much. This is Thank you, Tim. Thank the you. longest conversation we've ever had. That was oh, great. thanks, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. I'll play it. Not the most boring. <laughs> um, and I look forward to seeing you in the flesh. Absolutely. Thank you. If you're not yet a BOF professional member, podcast listeners. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Listeners can benefit from a 25% discount on your first year of an annual membership using the code PODCASTPRO. That's PODCAST P-R-O. POF Podcast is edited and produced by Venetia Van Horn Alcama, Kate Vartan, and Kevin Bobby Blanco in the BOF Studio team.